We are disconnected from the messages of our DNA. We are disconnected from the attempts of our gut bacteria to influence our health in a positive way. We're disconnected from our neighbors, our friends, our families, our communities, other countries, and we're disconnected from the planet. So those are the relationships that need to be rekindled. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hi, Almost 30. Hey, everyone. It's Lindsay and Krista, and we are coming to you live from LA. Back in black. (laughs) I know. I I had a moment the other day. I was like, I'm going to wear more color. I know. And then um, I didn't. And then life went on. (laughs) I just, until, until I can, I don't know, have like a really wide array of things to wear. Like I just like wearing a uniform. I know. Until I can wear something and not get stains on it. Oh, that is. And I get color. The rule. That is the truest thing Crystal is. Truly. Until I can wear something and not get stains all over it. (laughs) I turn my back once and it's like, whoops. And I'm like, what? And Turn I, around and there's honestly, there's a salad like lay, salad piece laying on my boob. <laughs> it's quite the, it's quite the issue. Uh, welcome back. If you are um, returning, we are so appreciative of you. We are so glad you're here. And if you're new, we are almost thirty podcasts. We started uh, because of the transition from our twenties to our thirties, talking about all the things that happen during that time when you feel super lost, when you feel like you don't know where your life is going, or who your friends are, or who you are, or how you should be in the world. And now we've grown into a community all over the world. We have an ambassador program that allows and empowers um, women in cities all over to host heart-centered events where they can connect with people in their local community. And we also have another business called Your Podcast Pro. And Your Podcast Pro helps to bring your idea to iTunes. We help to support and facilitate you creating and monetizing your dream podcast. So you can go to yourpodcastpro.com to get all the resources that we've used to build almost 30. Yeah. We know so many of you are starting your own brands and, or like a nice fun side hustle that just gives you life. And a podcast is just a great way to do that and express yourself. So we have all that you need. Yeah. How's your weekend? Weekend was good. Weekend was really great. I saw my sister for 24 hours, went up to San Francisco. Yeah. And I was just contemplating like towards the middle of last week, like, "Ah, should I go? Should I go? Because we had to be back um, to speak at the Good Fest LA, which was so fun. But I was like, oh, that's kind of rushing and a a little bit too much. But then I was like, I'm going to think about this as like the most fun, easy, like stress-free 24 hours ever. 
you know, instead of just thinking like, oh, I only have 10 yeah. more hours left. Oh God. Like, you know, it just, I compl- I was very cognizant of that and it ended up being so easy and fun. And it was such a gorgeous day. My sister and I like went to brunch and then mm. we got little massages and took like two or three walks in different areas of San Francisco and then got dinner, went to an improv show. I was in bed and then got up oh. 5.30 and left. I love that. It was great. Always take the trip. Always I always do it. Always I know. take the trip. That's I tell literally what that. I said to myself when I was huge advice. Always take the trip. Mm-hmm. Honestly, great. it was great, and like, it's nice. You know, it's nice too. Where like, I I still had, it, I wasn't preparing for a long trip, so I still could do like work on the plane and just kind of like be in the day still because it was a Friday and we still had stuff to do, but it didn't feel like I was super, you know, out of it. Yeah, still kind of in the flow, which felt good. Yeah. And then, yeah. Good uh, Fest was great. Yeah. The Good Fest was so fun. We yeah. saw all of our friends. So we moderated a panel, Lindsay and I, female founders panel um, at the Good Fest in LA. There was some of our friends, Milana Snow. And Maya French, founder of Koya, Lan Belinky, uh, co-founder and general manager of Bosha. One um, well, favorite mask of ours. Yeah. Bosha. Charcoal mask is um, Amy Duncan, founder of Moellen's. And it was just a really powerful panel. All the women were so different, but um, there was a common thread of of them just taking risks, trusting their instincts as women are so, so adept at doing. Um, and it was just really inspirational from the people in the audience that told us they they got a lot out of it. So we were happy to just facilitate the conversation. Yeah, it's always cool to do that. It is interesting, you know, I've been thinking about lately, like, because we've been a part of a lot of female founder panels, which is, you know, what we're doing and what I'm so proud to be a part of. And I do think we there needs to be an opportunity for the space to be created for girls that aren't entrepreneurs yeah. or are not on the path to entrepreneurship and, you know, work within the corporate world, quote unquote. Because I could wonder or I could imagine that it would be maybe inspirational, but also disheartening and confusing if you don't have that, you know, if you don't have your thing like the female founders have, you know, because a lot of them have heart-centered businesses that came about because of a certain something that happened in their life that they turned into a business. So I just have been thinking about that lately. Like, how could we be more inclusive to people that are working in the corporate world and work within like a larger corporate structure? Yeah, I think it's important that women who are working in the corporate world, like my sister, for example, she was a solo entrepreneur and as a holistic nutritionist, but recently um, uh, got a corporate job that she's really loving. She's loving the structure, but I'm also wondering if women within that have the power to, like we have in these conversations with entrepreneurs to bring that femininity, femininity, well, and the, um, just the intuitive nature to doing things rather than this like hard and fast and structured masculine way of doing business and to do it in a way that's empowering rather than feeling like they're taking a risk doing it and that it's going to just like stir up the status quo so much that they won't um, make any progress. But yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. You know, there's a lot related to the, you know, how you show up if you're showing it masculine, feminine, but there's also like things within the corporate environment related to policies and processes that 
you know, we could use to help one another or we could use to support women or you could use for your growth. You know, I think that there's a lot of things that happen in corporate companies that we don't think about when we're thinking about promotions, raises or getting visibility or things like that. So, you know, I've just been thinking about that lately is how could we be more inclusive to women that are experiencing that or giving, you know, trying to see like earlier on in the process of being an entrepreneur, like how exactly did people find their passion? How exactly did people really, really get started? Um, I think that there's a lot of advice out there for female entrepreneurs, but really the nugget is finding that thing. What is that thing? What is that thing that I'm here to do? What is that thing that I could really, you know, hang my hat on or really invest in growing to become something and then become a female entrepreneur while I'm working in my corporate job or while I'm doing whatever job it is? Um, So I don't know what that would be, but hopefully we can figure it out. Make a million dollars. Yeah. I think it's just like uh, women are the best multitaskers. So just really indulging in that and not being afraid to do that. Um, I think from who we've interviewed over the last couple of years, it's, you know, those um, side passions that didn't set out to necessarily make a million dollars. They were just coming from their heart and something they really wanted to do and it made them happy. And I think, you know, that's how women are going to change the corporate world is really finding um, more ways within your job to be happy you know, and feel fulfilled rather than just getting that paycheck and making a lot of money and talking about numbers. It's like, there is, there is payment and happiness too. Like, and I I don't, I think men want to experience that too. They just don't know that, or they, they haven't really thought about it in that way. They wait until after, you know, they leave work to be like, okay, let me go to go do things that make me happy, but maybe there's ways in which you can find it within your... Yeah. Whether that's like taking walks, you know, during meetings or even like trying to see with your boss, like, hey, could I take this call while walking? Mm-hmm. You know, asking for... There's there's opportunities, I think, that people could take in the corporate workplace. And I only started to like utilize and flex these at the end when I kind of didn't really give a shit mm-hmm. whether or not people were going to like jive with what I was doing. I remember when I was in Chicago for my last job, I was like working on my knees. So I would either stand up and work or sit. I always like sit on my knees a lot just to like not sit on my butt all the time. Mm -hmm. And all the girls in Chicago were like talking to the other LA girls and they're like, oh, isn't everyone in LA like working on their knees? (laughs) Is that like the thing? And it was just like another thing like that I would take calls while walking. Like I would take time to like meditate in an office room. Like if it was dark, like there's just little things that like, if you don't give a fuck enough or if you check in with the team, like you could be the trailblazer at your exactly. corporation or at your job that is going to take walks when you have five minutes, that is going to ask for like lunch meetings with people so you can connect in real life outside of the office, that is going to, you know, have a fitness ball in your room or whatever it is, have essential oils, like a diffuser running in your office. There are a lot of different ways that we can incorporate into make your office more uh, wellness friendly, more entrepreneur friendly, more happiness friendly that we can really look at while exploring entrepreneurship or other ways to make you happy, you know, if you are deciding to stay in the corporate world, which is awesome too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and I, and I can imagine that like, if anyone, you know, say in St. Louis and they're working in their awesome corporate job and they were to be like, oh fuck, I'd love to like 
bring a bouncy ball in to be uh, as my chair, right? And I can imagine that people in the office are like, oh, wow, someone's bringing in a bouncy ball. But what to your point, it's just like, you can't give a fuck what other people think when it comes to your wellness within the workplace. You have to be your own advocate. And honestly, give them a second. They'll probably follow suit once they see how much happier you are or how much better you feel, whatever it is. I mean, don't they want you to be the best employee possible. So like, let them do what they want to do. I know. And it's people that, you know, either they want to be doing what you're doing if you're doing something different. So, you know, if you're not having the the cake at the birthday party in the conference room, or you're not, you know, having a drink at happy hour after work, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities at work to be unhealthy and to not prioritize your wellness. And if you're doing that and you're actually like sticking to what you want to do, people will take notice and people will actually what I've found is be empowered by your decisions. Yeah. Like people would say all the time, they're like, I want to be be like you, quote, I'm quoting this in the sense that I wouldn't drink at happy hours. I would leave work during lunch to work out when I could, or, you know, just like taking opportunities within the system mm-hmm. to be more healthy and to be more well and not really caring about what I looked like to others because I know that it worked for me and I know that it made me a better employee and it made me more present. And it's really what was going to be best for me to perform at my job and also live a happy life. Um, So thinking about what things that you can do, you know, whether it's talking to your boss about certain things or your coworkers and also just like sticking to it. And I also found that having a sense of humor about it really works well. So if someone, trying to think of an example of something I would do at work, if for an example, like with your bouncy ball example, if you had a ball that you wanted to sit on instead of something else, if someone comes by and they're like, oh, like sweet ball, you know, just like laugh about it, like make fun of yourself, like laugh about it. Like it's different and it's outside of the realm of normal things. So if you like make fun of it and you kind of like lighten up the mood with that, then it always seems to like work out well and disarm both parties. You know what I mean? Like they'll be fine with it. You'll be fine with it. And because imagine if you're, if you're bothered by it, then it like then it says to them that you don't really believe in what, you know what I mean? Yes. There's, it's like you set the tone for how they see what you're doing. And if you're like, eh, no big deal, this is just what I'm doing. Exactly. And they're like, okay, no big deal. Yeah. And they're like, well, see you later. <laughs> Dude, yes. I'm trying to think of other things. Yeah, there were so many things that the work stuff, I just like could not do. I mean, sorry for microwaving broccoli. You know what I mean? Yo. Fuck them. Fuck them. I would eat, I would eat mad lean cuisines at the beginning of my job for sure. I used to fall oh, asleep yeah. like at my first job at like 11 a.m. It was really hard, dude. Like the first time, people will know this if you worked at a desk job. The first like two days of sitting at my desk, I was like, oh my God. How am I going to do this forever? I have to do this for eight hours? Yeah. Imagine. You're like, okay, you sit down in front of a computer. It's like, okay. Eight more hours of it. Like, it's crazy, crazy. And, you know, time eventually flies and you have stuff to do and, you know, work like evolves and you, time eventually passes. But it's it's a crazy feeling that you're like, because I never studied for eight hours. Hell no. I never, the most I probably studied at one time was two, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Like, I never like sat down for eight hours. I never sat for six hours. I never really like forced myself to do something for a prolonged period of time. So like to do that was like, holy mackerel. Wow. 
Yeah, no. Crazy. I got like a sniff of it when I was in Boston and I was like, whoa, I am... Because I just could not do it. I was so bad at it. And it was like, get me out of here. Yeah, honestly. You know, like it was, it was, it was way too much for me. I didn't even give it like that much of a chance, but... But yeah, I, I I feel like, you know, we do have to have a more inclusive conversation about that. And I think because it's female, this is the thing is female entrepreneurs is new or mm. in the past couple of years. So that's the thing right now, you know, more females are owning their own companies. Like I think right now there's a lot of women that instead of like working their way up the corporate ladder are finding greater success doing things on their own and doing things differently. So that's why there's like a rise of female entrepreneurs and there's more opportunities in creative spaces, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, um, digital media, creative Mm -hmm. services, whatever. So there's a lot of more female centric businesses that are available. So there are more women that are becoming entrepreneurs. So that's why we're having these sort of conversations because it's newer, Totally, you know, so, but it was cool. It was really nice. It's always nice to, and to see like new products and brands pop up and it's really inspiring. There was a, um, that freshwater brand I thought was cool. I hadn't seen, you had seen it before. Um, I'm going to think of it. Rise Springs. Yeah. Something Springs. But they get their water from like. Rising Springs. Yeah. Yeah. In Idaho's sawtooth floor forest, not sponsored, but. And it's from directly from the source. Yeah. Like. Whatever that means. Extremely rare source of the the purest water. Honestly. It's the only unfiltered, only unfiltered water in California or something like that. I I was like, huh? I know. Honestly. But it's cool to see these like really niche brands. I'm like, whoa. That's how I felt at the, so I went to the Conscious Living Expo this weekend. Oh yeah. You guys, this is like a new level of, of my life. Justin and I. So the Conscious Living Expo is very unique. It is, you think it would be kind of, it it would be health and wellness brands that are, you know, on the cutting edge trend wise, Mm -hmm. and it would be very polished. And, you know, because right now the word conscious is so popular, but it is, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot of, there's health and wellness stuff. And then there's a lot of spiritual stuff. So there's tons of psychics, tons of clairvoyance, tons of mediums, tons of healers, um, And then there's also people that are really interested in UFOs. And there's also people that are interested in sacred geometry. And there's also people that are interested in, I I don't even know. It was like so hard to describe. It was crazy. So it was at a Hilton, which, you know, whenever you go to, yeah, I love a good like. Ballroom. I love a good, yeah. I love a good ballroom conference room moment. It's like. Like honestly, my, my energy like thrives in like carpet, harsh lighting and uncomfortable chairs. Like I feel like I'm like my very best self. Like Sconces on the wall. Literally, like, oh. Justin and I like both like he fell asleep during one of them because it's, yo, you want to drain your energy? Be I was going to say. Be in that environment. It's crazy. Like I would love to have Dave Asprey talk about it or something, but the lighting, the temperature, the mm. lack of healthy foods, the lack of oxygen. Really? Lack of healthy foods there? Well, they did have healthy foods, but like, 
I know what you it mean. It feels gross. I don't know. It feels gross I eating know. on carpet on gold chairs with like a PowerPoint in front of you. Were you seated the whole time and it was just like person after person or was it like an expo? So we went and there's expo. So there's tons of booths, which is really interesting. So I was thinking about it. I'm like, this is helpful for me in what we do because it there is a lot of stuff that like allows us to be on the cutting edge of health and wellness. You know, things related to um, like your water being, having being like sacred geometry, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really even know how to explain it, but like having a water that's like filtered on a pyramid grid system. So it has a perfect hexagonal structure allows you to feel more hydrated and have more energy. And then um, there's a lot of health stuff like supplements and Chinese herbs that I actually have never heard of. And I feel like we have experience and uh, have been exposed to a lot of them. And so it was interesting to see those. And then um, there was a lot of stuff on CBD, which mm. was interesting. And then there was also a session that we went to on terpenes. So terpenes are naturally occurring in the universe and they are in things like pine or basil. or in cannabis? It is related to cannabis in the sense that it helps to activate cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. So people infuse terpenes and cannabinoids to make it more effective. So, but terpenes can also be infused in other things. Um, And essentially, like as an example, here's an essential oil. We have an essential oil, tangerine. There are terpenes that exist in tangerine and they could take the terpenes out of the essential oil supplement. So it's breaking it down even more Mm -hmm. and taking the beneficial properties out of it. So if this tangerine essential oil is supposed to reduce your anxiety, create a calming effect, the terpenes have been extracted from this and you could use them to infuse them in something else. If that makes sense. So it's like the very molecular granular thing about them. So in the future, terpenes are going to exist on a broader scale to help health, to help, um, you know, increase lung capacity, liver function. There's like all these very specific things that we can pull from nature to infuse in foods as terpenes, foods, um, liquids, cannabis, whatever. So that one was very interesting because I think in the future, especially in the cannabis industry, you'll hear a lot more about terpenes. So they talk about like indica is, Mm -hmm. is like a strand or something that people use in smoke. And that is like no longer really cool, I guess, in the cannabis industry. And terpenes is like the new hot thing. So that session was like fascinating. And the guy there was like really, really polished and super professional. He was like super interesting. Did you talk to any of the UFO guys? So no, I didn't. I didn't see anyone. It was crazy. There wasn't as much UFO stuff as I thought, Mm. which was a bummer. So the ones that we went on were, there's one that was interesting though. It was um, the passages of the gods. So gateways of the gods. Mm. And he basically talked about these points on our earth that have a electromagnetic field or an energetic field And they basically are portals to other dimensions, whether negative or positive. So um, one of them exists on this island. It's called um, Island of the Dead. And it lives off of the coast of Ireland. And it's basically like a very energetically powered island where it has almost like a hole in the middle of the island. And they say that spirits go in and out of it. And he said he spent, he's been in the paranormal space for 30 years. And he's like, I spent one night on the island and I've never felt so much like energy and paranormal activity there. And so 
basically the um, what they've done in these spaces is, um, and there's a few other ones that he named, and it's crazy because it's actually like a hole and they actually have like in the previous times filled these holes because there's like so much spiritual energy going in and out and they have to cover them in iron. And what they've found is that spirits and aliens are um, iron like prevents you from interacting with them. So I guess it's like a blocker. So you know how you talk about vampires? It's like garlic. Mm-hmm. Iron is basically something that protects you from abducting you. And he said that... <laughs> So we're talking about aliens right now. <laughs> women get a t- women get a, like abducted the most during their monthly cycle when their iron is low. So when they're on your cycle, because you're shedding your uterine liner, you're getting rid of blood. So your iron levels are naturally lower in your body. Wow. And that is the time when women are most likely to get abducted. And m- women are more likely than men to be abducted. I'm about to go. I know. <laughs> Crazy, right? That's so interesting. I know. It's freaking crazy. So iron, basically, when used on this planet, can give you the right protection. Damn. I know. So that one was so interesting. And then um, the second one we went to was about sacred geometry existing in, like, our natural world. And basically talking about how energy is, like, 99% of what we can't account for, but what Mm. exists. So basically, if we were to look at mathematically what our physical bodies were compared to what exists in in nature, 99.9% of everything that exists is energy that we can't see in point zero one is our physical bodies. So there's so much happening energetically that we cannot see that, you know, exists. And I thought that was like really, really, really interesting. And then he also talked about there is um, an increase in the um, magnetic field of the sun. And so right now we are being, like the ESA has detected a 15% drop in the earth's magnetic field. So that is producing a greater and faster change in energy because our magnetic field is decreasing. So that's why things are happening so much faster. That's why things are changing so rapidly and this is also accounts for our north and south poles moving uh, right now on Earth. Wow. I know, it's crazy. It's fucking fascinating. Yeah, that was, it was just so much. Like there was so many sessions and there's just, I mean, honestly, it was wild, the people that were there. I can't even imagine. Wild and crazy. I mean, it, it does give you kind of like a, I would think that it wasn't there, but like just a, a newfound appreciation for like, the life around you, like we're pretty, we're pretty in it. So like, we're aware of these, you know, ideas about sacred geometry and all of this, but it's just like, it's such a, I don't know. It's like a gift to like, kind of know that next layer of like the world we're living in. Cause people can easily just live a very surface under surface understanding of the world around them. And that's fine and yeah. safe and whatever, but like how beautiful to think of like, like the sacred geometry of like a flower. And then like the, you know what I mean? Like That's how like the universe (laughs) communicates with us. It's so beautiful. That's how like, you know, source communicates is through geometry and everything is explainable through geometry. So yeah, I mean that stuff, it's like, it's just comical. Like a part of it's funny and a part of it's fun. And part of it is just like, I want to always have hobbies and interests that are outside what anyone I know is doing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want to always be doing something that, other people aren't doing. And I always want to have other IP ideas and opinions to bring to the table, other stories and experiences to bring to the table. I always want to just be choosing wonder, you know, 
um, in my life and having people share things with me that always cause me to wonder and to make sure that, you know, I remind myself of how small I am, how small everything is, how small our experiences are, and that we're just like a blip on the radar. You know, it's a beautiful thing. And I think we're all here for a purpose, but just to remember everything that's happening outside of us is really important. I completely agree. Yeah. Briefly, I watched that documentary on Netflix, Heal, and that made me think of it. It's, It's where it's just like this greater understanding of like, one, we are not our diseases or our illnesses and that like there is just so much more happening on a molecular level, on an energy level, on a spiritual level that could be contributing, making better or worse our health, our well-being. What's it about? um, So they bring together a ton of um, practitioners, um, spiritual practitioners, physicians, more like Eastern medicine types who are looking at the body in a holistic way. Medical medium was on there. Uh, They have, I I forget what she did, but she uh, brings her patients through a particular type of therapy that releases um, trauma in the body. Wow! And this woman, um, I just highly recommend watching it. This woman was diagnosed with stage four cancer, had cancer in her liver and her pancreas and like four, three or four different organs and was just given a very grim prognosis um, or diagnosis. And um, they wanted her to go through two full rounds of chemo radiation surgery. Um, And that would take, you know, a certain amount of time. So she just decided that she was going to do that, but on the other side of it, really tackle with more of her energy, the holistic part. So, um, you know, doing sound healings, meditation, you know, just all of this different healing modalities. And after only one round of chemo and radiation, she went back to her doctor and she was completely cancer free. Wow. So, and it was just like, you you saw during the process of her, you know, what she was doing and um, just the power of positive thought. This other man like visualized his spine coming back into alignment after a really bad car crash. And every single day he would imagine, like it would take him hours to truly imagine like his, his, each disc aligning. And um, there was a day in which it all just locked in. Like Mm. he opened his eyes. He was like, you know, almost like he had a fresh breath of air in a new life. And mm-hmm. he just was, he was better. Oh, I love that. And I know it sounds crazy, but it, it, it just made me think a lot about people in my life who have gotten sick, why they've gotten sick on a, on a deeper level yeah. and then how they've healed, Yeah, you know? So it's, it's just a really good reminder if anyone is dealing with or have people they're close with dealing with you know, any disease, any condition, it's it's really important to treat the whole body, the mind, the spirit. It's all so deeply connected. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I'm experiencing that. In my family, I have someone that's very sick mm-hmm. and it's very apparent um, after the death, after a death in the family, mm-hmm. why they are sick. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it's... Yes. The, yeah. the grieving process is so hard. And our bodies listen to everything we think, you know, and holding space for someone who's grieving after a loss is really hard too. Really hard. I mean that, you know, crazy, crazy. 
Um, but yeah, Heal on Netflix. And we're going to try to get Kelly on the podcast, the director. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Perlmutter. Oh, this was a delight. <laughs> he is such a sweetheart. He's so sweet and so smart. And just another one who was so present with us. I mean, truly could have talked to him for hours. I know. He was, this was over Zoom, but it felt like he was sitting right here with us. He just was so engaged. And we were just feeling so lucky. He's the author of Grain Brain. And he is also a board certified neurologist, um, four-time New York Times bestselling author, and has really helped so many people um, not only, you know, just become aware of the effect of excess, you know, grain consumption in one's diet and how that can lead to disease, but also, um, you know, he has many... Uh, peer-reviewed scientific journal uh, publications about, you know, Alzheimer's and various other neurological diseases that um, are exacerbated by the consumption of grain, wheat, sugar, yeah. all of that. We were introduced to him by Max Lugavere, who's a huge fan. And um, I love the work that he's doing. I think it's amazing for him to come about it from uh, the perspective that he does. And he makes it so easy to understand. He is so researched, so kind. And we were honored to have him on the podcast. You can find more about Dr. Perlmutter at drperlmutter.com. That's P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R. Um, so if you love this episode, please share it with a friend, family, anyone who could find this information useful. Um, and if you haven't already join our secret Facebook group, we are waiting in there. 10,000 women are talking every day, supporting one another, laughing, uh, sharing and getting together in real life as well. We have an ambassador program now. So search for your subgroup in our secret Facebook group. And if you don't find your city, perhaps you want to start a chapter yourself. Yeah, we just added Boise, Idaho, and Costa Rica. What's cool. Up? What's up? And then we will see you in Austin, March twenty mm-hmm. sixth. We are having a beautiful event at the Refinery. Tickets are available on our website, and that one is going to be awesome. awesome. I cannot wait to see you guys in Austin. You've been, you know, such a great support for us. So we're really looking forward to um, seeing you at the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rachel Rosen will be joining us for that one. Um, and we will be at the Good Fest. So join us there. Yes. Can't wait to see you. Um, all right. We'll see you on the other side of this episode. We are honored to be with you today. Um, we have some mutual acquaintances. Um, Max Lugavere has uh, you know, spoken to us about you many times. He is such a fan of your work. I have seen Grain Brain. Um, I've read a little bit about it. And you also know- Yeah, Aaron Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Luke Storm. Well, Grain Brain, as you may know, it just revised uh, five yes. years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it's been a, an amazing ride over five years. We've learned a lot and uh, it's been- Pretty exciting. What have you learned? Uh, well, I've learned that it's good to be disruptive, that uh, when you are disruptive, it helps move the ball down the field, that we won't be making progress unless we challenge the status quo, um, that people have a bit of a misunderstanding about what they should be doing diet-wise in terms of going keto and cutting carbs. So a, a lot of things along that line. Um, this book, uh, I've learned a lot from around the world. It's in 35 languages now. So 
Uh, we've had input from people of various cultures and diets and backgrounds. So it's been very instructive. Wow. Have you received any, uh, before we get into your story, have you received any pushback as you've kind of pushed the ball down the line? Mm -hmm. I think when, you know, you take a stand as, as you have and be, with so much research behind it, I can imagine that there are people, whether in the medical world or pharmaceutical world that have given you pushback. What has that been like? So the answer is absolutely and gratefully. So uh, I did the CBS This Morning program a couple weeks ago. And, it, you know, this is on national television. And as we started out, they said, Dr. Perlmutter, the, you know, the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain. Uh, and before they even got to me, they, they said, but we reached out to the sugar industry. And they said, and they said, of course, we should all be eating more sugar. It's good for us. Decades of research will tell us that. So, um, you know, that's the kind of uh, people are down on what they're not up on. And, you know, the idea that we need to cut our sugar and exercise and pay attention to our relationships and sleep. These are inconvenient truths that uh, people don't want to necessarily embrace, but that's okay. We stay in the game. Mm. It what we're recording too, um, but that's what you know. I love about your work. That's why I was so attracted to your work is because it is um, pushing the envelope against you know the wheat industry, against the sugar industry. Um, I've had Alzheimer's in my family. My dad, you know is um, on his way to Parkinson's. So a lot of your research in um, your book and then as well as Luke's book, which is kind of a take on on yours I've sent to them and, you know, trying to work with them to rethink the way they think about those um, diseases. And that's what I, you know, was so attracted to your work in the first place. Well, thank you. Are we, have we started? Yes. We jumped oh, right in. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. Welcome. I didn't have much of an intro, but that said, uh, you know, let's let's talk about your father for a moment, if you're okay with that. Yeah, and, would love to. Uh, you know, I think it's very compelling that there will be uh, this year uh, one million Americans diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and I think that when we recognize that our lifestyle choices do indeed play a very important role in determining who does and who doesn't get Parkinson's, it's actually uh, that that conversation is is something that we never really see that. You know, the idea that, for example, being a diabetic is associated with an increased risk of, of diabetes. We don't learn that in neurology school, uh, but yet that's true. So, and, and being a type 2 diabetic is something that we can uh, pretty much determine. And it's a lifestyle choice. If you're eating a diet that's high in simple carbohydrates and not getting exercise, you will, of course, increase your risk for diabetes. Uh, and, you know, a, a study that came out in the journal Neurology, which is in my field, the, the most well-respected journal, uh, back in July of 2018, looked at a large number of uh, individuals with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, about 2 million of them, and compared them to 6 million controls. And they found that, especially as it related to the younger diabetics, their risk for getting Parkinson's was increased almost fourfold. So uh, that's really important. Fourfold risk of a disease, I will tell you, a disease for which there is no treatment. Yes, we have medications. I'm certain your dad would probably be on one or more of them that manage the symptoms. But in terms of treating the underlying problem, we don't have a medication for that. But yet we know uh, that diabetes is strongly related to risk for this disease, Parkinson's. So you know, when we think about Linda Ronstadt and Neil Diamond, Muhammad Ali, Janet mm -hmm. Reno, and so many, Michael J. Fox, notables, 
it's not for lack of popularity uh, in terms of the public discourse about it. People talk about Parkinson's, but the notion of disease prevention by recognizing these relationships really is something that has to come to the forefront. Bill Gates said that uh, treatment without prevention is not sustainable. So we've got to emphasize prevention. And, you know, I'm certain that our conversation today will likely take us to the place of, of Alzheimer's disease too, which is by and large a preventable disease. So I think front and center, I've had a coffee, so you can tell. Uh, oh, front, yeah. <laughs> front and center uh, is the relationship of diabetes, for example, to some of these issues. A, if you become a type 2 diabetic, you have quadrupled, as much as quadrupled your risk for Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's happens to be a disease, again, for which there is no treatment. Diabetes is associated with up to a fourfold increase for a disease for which, uh, increased risk for disease for which there is no treatment. What are we missing here? You know, it's really that important. So let's look at diabetes and let's look at things that go well beyond uh, dietary issues. For example, uh, we know as published in the journal Diabetologia uh, that men who are taking statin drugs for their cholesterol have a 41% increased risk of type 2 diabetes. Women taking statin drugs, the Women's Health Initiative, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I might add, uh, more than 150,000 women. Women taking this drug to lower their cholesterol have about a 71% increased risk of diabetes. And I mentioned earlier, diabetes is associated with as much as a fourfold increased risk for Alzheimer's, a disease for which there is no treatment. So, um, one other thing I'll just mention along those lines, I think it's really very important. In November of 2018, in the Journal of the American Medical Association was an amazing study uh, written by a Dr. Richard Kennedy. And what Dr. Kennedy did was he looked at 10 other studies of the so-called Alzheimer's drugs, because there are drugs marketed to treat Alzheimer's patients. They sell close to a billion dollars a year of those drugs in America. We've known for a long time that they don't work. And what Dr. Kennedy uh, described in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, this uh, was a meta-analysis of 10 other studies. 2,714 individuals were looked at, comparing those with Alzheimer's who were treated versus those who did not receive the common Alzheimer's drugs. Those who were treated, not only did they not improve, they actually got worse than the people who weren't treated in terms of their cognitive function. Using the so-called Alzheimer's drugs is associated with a more rapid cognitive decline. Why do I have to be on your uh, podcast to talk about that? That should have been on the front page of the New York Times yeah. or the Evening News. Yeah. It was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association. These drugs that people put their faith into for their mothers and fathers and husbands and wives uh, are actually speeding their cognitive decline. It's like giving a blood pressure a pill that will actually raise your blood pressure. And so, yeah, What's these are sort of the motiv motivating developments these days and why we redid Grain Brain because yeah. so much more has uh, developed uh, that uh, needs to be vetted. It needs to be made public.
So what's the gap there then, you know, where science is coming is, you know, all of these studies and this new information is coming out. What is the gap from people seeing this information and applying it to their lives? Or why does everyone look at new scientific information kind of with a side eye wondering what's true or what's not? Because I just, I were completely, you know, on your, on your page and it's, it's a little disheartening sometimes when, you know, you see people in your family on these drugs or you see people trying to find solutions and it's really going about it the wrong way. So what is the gap here? So the disconnection that you called attention to is a disconnection, you said, between knowing this information and acting on this information. And that's really very fundamental. And I think that we have been led to believe that the doctors are going to fix our problems. And what, what I am making very clear is that we have to be the ones in the driver's seat because the lifestyle choices are ours to make. Uh, you know, we've got to pay attention to the fire and not the smoke. So it changes the responsibility from the doctor to find some magic pill, magic treatment back to me as an individual to look at this information and to go ahead and make those changes, which are not, uh, it's not an easy paradigm for people to accept because we've been used, we've been convinced we should offload uh, these ideas to the experts. Uh, but again, there is no treatment for what we're talking about. There is no treatment for diabetes from a pharmaceutical perspective at all. End of story. Yes, there are medications that diabetics take that will lower their blood pressure, but you still have diabetes. And yet, uh, a researcher uh, like Dr. Sarah Hallberg at Fertis Health has cured diabetes type 2 with diet, putting people on what's called a ketogenic diet. Who knew? And actually, they're no longer diabetic. So people tend to be down on, as I mentioned, well, they're down on what they're not up on. Mm. You mentioned lifestyle, and we'll certainly get into the diet part of it. Um, could you highlight you know, what you found as lifestyle choices that could fight the fire or you know, be preventative in this way to fight inflammation and everything that is causing you know, diabetes and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and sure. all those things. Well, you, you know, uh, Lindsay, you said something very, uh, very uh, insightful just then. You said, light the fire of inflammation. And in fact, the word inflammation comes from the Latin inflam, inflam meaning fire. So it truly is the body burning up. And, uh, you know, and I think it's very apropos your audience uh, that, our research now demonstrates that inflammation in your 30s and in your 40s is strongly associated with trouble down the line. Uh, and it is a situation where you can't wait to be my age, age 64, and suddenly say, well, okay, I think I got to start getting serious about these health issues. Maybe I'll go to the health food store and see what they have <laughs> as a just uh, to take that off topic for a second, what, what in the heck is a health food store? <laughs> to me, we have stores where the food is actually good for you. <laughs> Think about it. What's the rest of this stuff? Then what's at the grocery store if it's not health food? So mm. <laughs> what's all the rest of it? But anyhow, uh, in a study that appeared in the journal Neurology back in 2017, and this is in our new book, uh, appeared a very interesting uh, study. They looked at a group of individuals, uh, 1,600 people, and years ago, they measured their blood to determine 
the level of so-called inflammatory markers. And, you know, we now measure other things like C-reactive protein, et cetera. And then they follow these individuals for 24 years. And what they found was that those people who 24 years ago had the highest level of inflammatory markers had dramatic shrinkage of their brain and poor memory function. Now, that's based upon blood work that was done 24 years ago, i.e. in their 30s and in their 40s. And in a, in a similar study that uh, was done in, I think, 2008, also published in the journal Neurology, they did a similar study. They simply, instead of doing blood work, they measured the size of, of the belly. How big is your belly? And they followed these people for 36 years. And they found that those individuals who were, had the biggest belly 36 years before had a dramatic, in, a fourfold increased risk of dementia, fourfold increased risk of dementia by having a big belly 36 years ago. So my demographic, if you look at Facebook and my uh, website and uh, Instagram, et cetera, is women, uh, I think it's 45 to 65, which is great. But uh, the reality is that the people who need to get this message as it relates to the brain and neurodegeneration are people a lot younger. We know that childhood and adolescent obesity is a harbinger for midlife obesity. We know that childhood and uh, adolescent diabetes pretty well hangs diabetes on uh, your body for the rest of your life. So should we be targeting uh, 30 and 40-year-olds? Well, yeah, but now uh, recognizing that our childhood experiences and adolescent experiences pave the way for how we're going to be when we're your age. And then we also understand even beyond that, that what happens during our own gestation when we're still in our mother's wounds, her diet, her level of stress, her exposure to antibiotics, for example, and then when we're born, whether we're breastfed or we're born by cesarean section or not, uh, these all play critical roles in determining our health as children and adolescents in terms of inflammatory disorders like obesity and diabetes. So when does an anti-Alzheimer's program begin? I'd say it begins during gestation. Hmm. Wow. And when you say that, what are some practical things if someone, you know, for a lot of our community, we really reach between the ages of 25 and 35, you know, 20 to 40. Um, what are some things that women that are thinking about having a child can think about um, when they're thinking about getting pregnant? I think that the dietary changes that are talked about for a woman during pregnancy should absolutely be instituted well beforehand. Uh, mm. Because those dietary changes play a direct role in gestation through nutrients for the fetus, but a somewhat indirect role when you look at how the gut bacteria influence not only the woman's health, but the health of the developing fetus as well. And those changes take some time to be incorporated and I would say leveraged positively. So this is a diet then uh, before a pregnancy that uh, is really high in above ground colorful vegetables. Uh, if a woman chooses to eat meat, it should be grass-fed beef, wild fish, free-range chicken. Uh, a diet that's really centered on having lots and lots of good healthful fat, lots of olive oil, and by all means, lots of good fiber, especially 
prebiotic fiber, foods that are rich in prebiotic fiber. And beyond that, uh, you know, recognize that, for example, the omega-3 DHA is critically important. So clean seafood or a, a DHA supplement, making sure vitamin D levels are adequate and magnesium as well. Uh, and by all means, being super careful with respect to medications that threaten the gut bacteria. And those include, obviously, the antibiotics, but also the non-steroid type uh, anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen that people seem to think is really safe, but isn't. Uh, and acid-blocking drugs that are so common, especially during pregnancy, once the belly gets big and women tend to have a lot of... Um, regurgitation, a lot of reflux, first thing they do is reach for an over-the-counter acid-blocking drug that's devastatingly damaging to the gut bacteria. So uh, that, and I would say uh, avoiding artificial sweeteners as well. Those would be the, the important keys. Mm -hmm. What about just keeping with the gut and, um, you know, Obviously, we've learned that there is a gut-brain connection. There's no question about it. If not, if it's not the second brain, it is the brain. So what about um, keeping the gut biome healthy? What about fasting uh, is really helping the brain itself? In a word, I would say the most salubrious characterization of the gut microbe uh, constituents uh, that is most beneficial would be diversity. So we really want to do whatever we can to maintain diversity in, uh, in terms of the, the various types of organisms, uh, bacteria that live within us. And we do that, again, by not threatening the gut bacteria by the, what I've, I've mentioned before, and understand that diversity is enhanced, uh, not just based upon diet, but also based upon exercise. Who knew that aerobic exercise, yeah, it's good for you, feel good, good for your weight-bearing uh, program, uh, good for your brain by increasing production of a chemical called BDNF, but uh, aerobic exercise is associated with increased diversity of the gut uh, microbes, which is what we need so that the gut microbes can help the brain, can make B vitamins that the brain desperately needs, can help reduce inflammation, the pivotal player, as we talked about, in terms of brain degeneration, uh, that can help manufacture our neurochemistry like dopamine and serotonin that is so important for brain function that can help make what are called the short chain fatty acids to keep the brain healthy and to maintain the integrity of what is called the blood brain barrier. So, uh, and, and how that relates to uh, the ketone part of your question. Um, again, ketones are a type of fat that are produced when we have more fat in the diet, less carbs, or we fast, as you mentioned, and our bodies then tap into our body fat to use as a caloric resource. But these ketones are far more important than just serving as a super fuel for brain cells. When you have ketones floating around in your body, you are changing the expression of your DNA, you're reducing inflammation, you're amping up the production of this chemical BDNF that helps you grow new brain cells, you are increasing your body's detoxification pathways. You are increasing your body's own production of antioxidants. You know, everybody's taking all the antioxidants. Well, guess what? Your body makes a whole heck of a lot of antioxidants, and we can trigger those gene pathways by being in ketosis. You know, it's, it's a very 
new idea. I mean, the idea that humans in ketosis, that's only been something that was just just started happening. Only the past two million years have we been in and out of ketosis. So it's got a long track record. This is how we survived and flourished for the past couple of million years. We didn't always have three meals a day. There were times when the hunting, the gathering didn't pay off and we'd go uh, a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks or longer without having food. And you know, fortunately, we're able to be flexi, flex fuel and shift from glucose and stored glucose in the form of glycogen and tap into our fat, our body fat, and tap into that to use it as a really, really good food that not only provides us calories, but amplifies the longevity gene pathways. So why would we not want to embrace that today? Now, you know, that sort of plays into the the whole underpinning of the paleo movement where we want to emulate the lifestyle of our ancestors. And there's a lot of validity to that, especially as it relates to stressing ourselves physically, uh, metabolically, in terms of fasting. Uh, those are those low levels of stress are good for us. We call that hormesis when a low level of stress actually has a good outcome. Mm, that's called hormesis? H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S. And that's and another example of that would be working out. So like a low level working out. Uh, a lot of people are going into uh, like cryotherapy. Cryotherapy, yeah. yeah. I, I, I did that in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, live on Facebook. Oh, you did? Uh, what you think? I was uh, uh, with uh, went down. I was great. I went to minus one hundred and forty seven degrees. Nice uh, in a chamber of uh, a friend of mine, Dave Asprey. You probably know him. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you talk about chilling. That yeah, was great. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Dave's a friend of the pod too. We'll see him next week. Um, but I've been loving cryotherapy as well. It's really been a game changer for my inflammation and it's a mental game too, you know, really just kind of being in the body, but also disconnecting in a way, but, um, that's beautiful. So I wanted to actually, I guess, pull up a little bit. So was it that you got into neurology and then you started to look at some prevalent diseases in neurology, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and then you were working your way under to figure out what exactly was causing this because people necessarily don't have the solution or, or what was your journey into this to making a book that's talking about diet and lifestyle when really you were working from a place of the brain? Obviously, I've been asked that question before, so I've, I've had the opportunity to, to noodle that. And But I will say every time uh, I'm asked that, uh, I, I get a little different perspective, I guess, as I get older. But uh, I found in, in my first 10 years of neurology, it was very mainstream. Uh, I, you know, I was at the hospital until 10 o'clock at night, you know, and then uh, back if there was a stroke patient or whatever and making rounds at five in the morning on 50 patients that, and then going to the office and beating myself up. And it was a very tough lifestyle. No, I mean, that's what we did, right? And that's what I was convinced was the right thing to do. My father uh, who died of Alzheimer's was a brain surgeon. And, you know, that was sort of instilled upon me. That's what you do. You sacrifice. And, uh, and so two things came to the, to a boil. One was that I wasn't, home and my children were growing, you know, they were five and, and seven and I wasn't seeing them. And it was, uh, I, I lived through that personally and didn't want to do that anymore. Now they want to pass that on to the next generation. A and B, I wasn't really helping people. 
it was, you know, neurology, as Max Lugavere has said, is a, it's kind of a situation of diagnose and adios. And that's who I was. I was writing prescriptions left, right, and center. I'm sure the pharmaceutical people were really happy with me. But I don't think I was really helping people. And I realized that there wasn't really a lot to do to help people by just writing prescriptions. So I began to ask, well, why are these people coming to see me having headaches? And just asking that question, why are, are people having headaches? Right off the bat, went against the grain of what a neurologist does. A neurologist doesn't ask why you're having headaches. A neurologist gives you headache medicine and hope for the best. And we did that. And I began to note that diet seemed to have a, a role to play. There's one of my patients, and I remember his name to this day. His first name was Theodore. He was Greek. And uh, we were talking about his diet of all crazy things. And I didn't know much about diet at that point. I said, you know what? For the heck of it, for the next few weeks, stop sugar. He stopped sugar and his headaches went away. And that's an N of one. That's one patient. But I learned a heck of a lot from these ends of one. And so I began recommending to headache patients to stop sugar. And then I began recommending going gluten-free, who heard of such a crazy thing, for headaches. And not all the patients were improved or, or had any remarkable turnaround, but some did. You know, to me, if one person out of 100 had an improvement going gluten-free and didn't require medications, that would be a big deal. And in fact, I had one patient who had been on narcotics for 22 years, went gluten-free, and for the first time in his life went headache-free. We published this. So uh, as that started happening, that started uh, raising my, uh, what I was starting to do to the uh, doctors in town, and they weren't pleased about this stuff at all. Uh, they decided that they, you know, they didn't decide, but by, uh, as time went by, I started getting less and less referrals from the local doctors because they didn't like this nutrition stuff going on. And ultimately, it became clear that I needed to leave my practice that I was in with two other neurologists. And I did so. And I opened up my own clinic. And then I was set free. Uh, and before that happened, though, I remember I went, to, my wife and I went to Sanibel Island to a crappy hotel on the water and just walked around and decided what would, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, we're going to be okay. I and mean, we'll figure it out. So I spoke to my partner, said, it's really probably time for me to leave. And they, they, vociferously agreed with that and because they felt all oh, the practice could be threatened by somebody paying attention to lifestyle issues god forbid so i opened up with uh, a an assistant and a secretary i opened up a clinic who knew and um with time uh that thing sure expanded to two floors in a building and hyperbarics and nutritionist uh, you name it and uh, i got to do whatever i wanted and i got to explore things and i got to do um, you know, treat people based upon what was being published in the peer-reviewed literature and began to recognize that, yes, uh, our lifestyle choices moving forward to have a huge role to play in whether we end up with Alzheimer's or not, that we are the arbiters of our brain's destiny. Who knew? Uh, it was a wee bit lonely in that, you know, I was still, I think, maybe the only integrative or functional medicine neurologist in America. You know, I'd go to lectures and, you know, I, I was going to form an organization of functional medicine neurologists, but I would have been 
the membership and the president, <laughs> the secretary, the whole thing. So, but what I did find was um, as I began to do this and became more involved in it, I began getting opportunities to speak at various of these integrative functional medicine venues and talk about my results and what I was finding and uh, really began recognizing the powerful role that diabetes was playing in a lot of the stuff we were seeing and gluten as well. Not that I discovered all of that, but I was seeing it published in the literature, but I was open to seeing it in the literature. It was invisible, though it was published to other neurologists. Uh, there was a researcher in England named Marius Hajivasalu. What a great name. And he was publishing how gluten relates to movement disorders and headaches, uh, along with others publishing about gluten related to joint pain, skin issues, you name it. In other words, extra intestinal issues that had nothing to do with the gut. And I embraced that information and ultimately wrote Brain Brain. And that was a real turning point. Uh, you know, this book, you know, being published, uh, in 35 languages around the world really, I think, uh, made a mark and uh, opened a lot of doors for me to meet other people and learn more and attend conferences and lecture. And so it's been a terrific, terrific ride. Mm. What about the wheat industry in America specifically that people are, you know, ingesting is affecting us in this way? And why isn't it happening in certain parts of the world? It's a terrific question. And uh, certainly, I, I will just say parenthetically that uh, grain brain was not embraced by the wheat industry. You can be sure. Uh, immediately, they put up a website called Grains for Your Brain. Did no play on grain brain whatsoever, obviously. Wow. Which wow. didn't really tell you anything, but that we should all be eating grains because we should just be eating grains. And they left it at that. But that said, you know, even gluten free. Uh, grain foods are a very concentrated source of carbohydrate by and large. That's why they were so popular because it allowed us to harvest these grains and then store them and travel and explore the world and discover America, which is always kind of an interesting idea that Columbus discovered America when uh, because he had wheat and he had food and he discovered America, which hadn't been discovered before that although there are already 4 million people living here, um, we'll leave that for another discussion. But with that said, you know, these are the virtues of, our, of, the, of the agricultural revolution that it allowed us to have uh, the Sistine Chapel and put a man on the moon, whatever, you know, this is a great thing. But the reality is that human health took a huge nosedive with the advent of agriculture. I mean, that was the first major challenge to our paleolithic genome. And uh, our brains have shrunken 10% since that time. Dentition has become poorer. Uh, bones are thinner than our Paleolithic ancestors. And as a matter of fact, we did have 90-year-old and 100-year-old people living in those times. Was lifespan shorter than it is now? Yes, it was, because children would die and people would die in childbirth, uh, newborns and mothers, and people would die of trauma. So it brought the average down. But we had people, not we had, but the fossil evidence shows that people lived uh, could live to a very uh, old age. Uh, and if things are getting better and better, then why has longevity declined in America for men and women now for the uh, second year in a row ever in history, if things are going in the right direction? With all due respect, I submit that they are not. But uh, with respect to grain, uh, what we see is while wheat in America is not genetically modified, 
Nonetheless, it is still sprayed with this herbicide glyphosate, a weed killer, because farmers have been convinced to spray their wheat with glyphosate because it'll ripen it, it'll dry it, it desiccates it more quickly, they can bring it to market and make more money. So wheat-based foods from wheat derived in America are threatening because of their glyphosate content, because of their gluten content, and because they are high in carbohydrate and low in fiber. Uh, and if you're eating a lot of wheat-based foods, you're not eating other foods, which may very well be good for you. So we discussed in Grain Brain five years ago the notion that you can be sensitive to gluten and not have celiac disease. And that was so challenging. To this day, uh, nutritionists, dietitians write blogs about Grain Brain saying, look, if you don't have celiac disease, you should be eating a lot of wheat and gluten because it's good for you. Well, because they didn't want to believe that there is something called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is what we described in Grain Brain. And it was, you know, rejected in both medical and nutritional communities. So uh, how validating it was that the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017, in research published from Harvard School of Medicine, fully validated the notion of non-celiac gluten sensitivity and even further than that indicated that this is a pervasive issue in humans that they can have sensitivity issues related to gluten that have nothing to do with the gut that can involve the brain and the joints and the skin and fatigue and and other issues so it's been a very uh, high degree of validation for what really was very disruptive five years ago in that respect for people listening is it going gluten free or is it the low sugar or what are some things that they should be looking out for and thinking about as it relates to their diet it's actually both and i'll tell you why that's important because chris if you go to your grocery store and walk down the gluten-free aisle you're going to see foods that are hugely threatening to your life because they're high in sugar. We have gluten-free breads, cakes, pastas, pie, filling, you name it. And so it's not just the going gluten-free that is important. Avoiding sugar, I believe, is the number one issue of our time. Uh, and artificial sweeteners by virtue of the fact that they threaten the gut bacteria as well and are associated with obesity and diabetes. But so I think it's, it's the two. I think we should be as gluten-free as we can be, but definitely sugar and understanding where sugar is coming from. It's, you know, the hidden sources of sugar are everywhere. 80% uh, of foods in a standard grocery store have added sugar. No, you know, we don't talk about it. Uh, and I guess you don't add sugar to orange juice, but even your 12-ounce glass of orange juice has nine teaspoons of sugar, 36 grams of sugar, you may as well drink a can of Coke. Not that I'm saying that's a good idea. So maybe instead we should drink Diet Coke. Well, uh, what we now recognize is that consumption of artificially sweetened beverages is associated uh, with a dramatic increased risk of obesity and diabetes. Why would that be? There's no sugar. Well, it has to do with the changes in the gut uh, bacteria. That, you know, drinking the, and we all know people, they suck down the Diet Coke every single day and they're gaining weight. 
That's published literature. That comes from a study in France of 70,000 women. Wow. So uh, this is... This is what, it's not that Dr. Perlmutter is telling you this on your, on your show today. It's peer-reviewed literature uh, that is, uh, was in this book and in Brain Maker as well. And we, it is something that really is uh, devastating because what we've seen in the past five years is a reduction in carbohydrate consumption overall, yet obesity rates and overweight continue to increase. So that curve remains going sky high, whereas carbohydrates have leveled off and started to decline. And so some people look at that graph and say, aha, you see, it, it isn't the carbs that are making uh, people fat. Uh, but what's happening is, A, there's been dramatic changes to the microbiome from a variety of issues, including medications. And B, people are substitute, uh, substituting their carbohydrates with artificially sweetened foods and beverages which are clearly associated mechanistically with making people a gain weight. So uh, not what you want to do. Mm. And I can imagine that if, say you have, you know, a great diet going on, but if your emotional body or your management of stress is, you know, plummeting and just not working, like that it would have an effect and almost cancel out what you're doing on the nutrition side. So I'd love to talk about that and, and what you've found. Well, I, I think um, these are very good points. So what we're discussing here is a holistic approach, body, mind, and spirit. You know, even as it relates to these mechanisms that we fully understand, like the danger of elevated blood sugar, that stress through the action of the, of the hormone cortisol, uh, puts the body into a condition where it needs to have sugar. It needs to manufacture it and changes uh, your uh, appetite set point so that uh, you absolutely are, are going to be in a situation where uh, you're going to be you know, raising your blood sugar, even though you didn't necessarily consume it at that point. Uh, even a diet that, uh, unless you are really careful, a diet that's higher in protein will ultimately lead to increasing your blood sugar. So these are things that I think are very important uh, because, you know, you can still have elevation of your blood sugar and uh, the changes that that imparts to your proteins called glycation, uh, very, very important. And um, so lifestyle is important. We know that insulin resistance, in other words, changing the effectiveness of the hormone insulin, making it less effective in your body, happens when there is extraneous light on when you are trying to sleep. Who knew? I mean, that, I mean, that's published research. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that go into that. We know that we improve our blood sugars with exercise. Uh, we've known for a long time that blood sugar is better off uh, in people with higher fat in their diet. And remember, it wasn't that long ago when we were told that a high-fat diet is the quickest way to the grave. Nothing is further from the truth and nothing is in more in direct contact with our history nutritionally than, than I can imagine. It's just, uh, you know, people got hold of that and it was the sugar industry, as a matter of fact, I'm making it up. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association and written about in the New York Times that the sugar industry powerfully influenced what was published in well-respected medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, 
uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. So we all got on board with this, uh, that we should cut our dietary fat and eat more sugar. That wasn't, that wasn't very nice. So we talked about the body. We talked a little bit about the mind and some of the diseases and then spirit. So as far as you along this journey, kind of moving away from, you know, the where you were working so hard and you were kind of not tuned into yourself, how has like your spiritual journey evolved through doing this and doing this work with all the people that you help? First, I'd say that what my life is filled with these days aside from love, is gratitude. And it's uh, gratitude at so many levels for my family, for all of, the, you know, all of the blessings that we have as a family, and also gratitude that I have, you know, a little bit of intelligence going on here. And because <laughs> of that, I, 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 I'm not the smart, sharpest knife in the drawer, but uh, I've got a, I'm, I'm a little bit clever and I have um, the desire to explore things, and uh, and I, I like to demonstrate my gratitude by doing what I do, by making this information known, and uh, and hopefully alleviate the suffering of one person. That's to me, uh, you know, that's demonstrating my gratitude. So I, when I'm in this mode, as in communicating with you two right now, uh, I am feeling a a great degree of gratitude and it is a spiritual experience for me because I'm hopeful that one person's going to hear this podcast and make some changes and that makes me feel good. So uh, my practice uh, of meditation on a daily basis, I think is helpful for that. Uh, we are, my son and I, he's also an MD, have, are, are working on a manuscript for a book that comes out in January of 2020 called Brainwash. And that is a book that centers on this, on how do we reconnect our brain to the centers of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that allow us to be empathetic, compassionate, that allow us to, to respond as opposed to react, that allow us to respond to situations in a way that lets us take a step back and think about how the uh, the future may be impacted by what we do right now. That's the function of the prefrontal cortex. We're up against the other side of the story, and that is the amygdala part of the brain that is impulsive, uh, that wants to be satisfied right now, that reacts and doesn't respond. It reacts instantaneously, impulsively, and is uh, helps direct our thought that we want our satisfaction to happen immediately, whether it's the foods that we eat, the uh, impulse buying that we might do on Amazon, uh, the uh, narcissism that's involved in wanting people to like our selfies. It's all about short-term uh, satisfaction, which tends to distance us from connecting to that part of the brain that allows us to understand that we're all connected, uh, to be sensitive to your feelings when we are together, to understand that my actions impact you, impact the planet. And so we've learned quite a bit about how to, how to give people information that they can use to reconnect to that happy, uh, empathetic self. And it's about less screen time. It's about reaching out to others, uh, consuming a diet that's less inflammatory, uh, getting better sleep, 
spending more time in nature, reconnecting with nature allows, will rewire your brain for uh, empathy and compassion and, and happiness. Uh, who knew? So I think that that answered the spirituality question. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. How important has um, relationships played in in your life, both as you know, a physician and treating other people, and then how have you seen it affect those that you have treated? Well, I would say paramount. Uh, relationships means connection, right? Uh, and you are probably indicating the connection with patients and with other people in your life, etc. But I want to take a step back and look at a broader leveraging of that term uh, connection or disconnection at the, the opposite and recognize that, you know, by and large, modern society is suffering from disconnection syndrome. We are disconnected from the messages of our DNA. We are disconnected from the attempts of our gut bacteria to influence our health in a positive way. We are disconnected, as I mentioned, from the prefrontal cortex that allows us to be those beings that we could be. We're disconnected from our neighbors, our friends, our families, our communities, other countries, and we're disconnected from the planet. So those are the relationships that need to be rekindled. And so in a very broad sense, we need to reconnect. We need to reconnect with our genome. We need to understand that our food choices, our lifestyle choices, have a powerful effect on which genes are expressed at any given moment. Who knew? I mean, uh, when I was in medical school, DNA was locked in a glass case and determined everything about you. Now we understand that the foods we eat, the sleep we get or not, our exercise, changes gene expression moment to moment. So we need to reconnect with that. We need to understand that our gut bacteria are changing our gene expression. Those little guys are, are tinkering with my DNA. I want to treat them right. So I need to reconnect with my bacterial friends. They're working right now inside me, trying to keep their host healthy. We need to reconnect, as mentioned, with the prefrontal cortex to make uh, us uh, more able to be the people we could be, those compassionate, spiritual, empathetic beings that plan for the future and recognize that our actions today are going to have an impact uh, tomorrow, environmentally, uh, in terms of uh, our neighbors, in terms of how we treat ourselves, in terms of our health. The foods I eat today are going to be manifesting for the rest of my life. It's why we talked about those two studies earlier about either having a big belly or inflammatory markers elevated in your 30s portends a risk for neurodegeneration when you're my age. Uh, and uh, again, you know, it's, it's about uh, making reconnection a, a central theme in your life and realizing that our world is conspiring to some degree to isolate us, that social media is not social, that we think that's a great way to connect with people. But it, as a matter of fact, it makes us feel more alone and more isolated. We don't gain what we need to gain from being with people and seeing their facial expressions and touching them and breathing their air. As a matter of fact, when you're with another person, you're sharing bacteria. You're breathing back and forth microbes that are changing their gene expression. Just being near somebody changes his or her gene expression. 
And it's why, even though this is an audio recording, I'm thrilled that we can look at each other. There's so much with those smiles just now. Your <laughs> listeners are going to get that. But that told me so much about the two of you. And mm. you know, just looking at your faces, it just Angels. Uh, our relationship <laughs> is is cultured, and we need to do much more of that. Oh, I agree. So yeah. beautiful. Um, you are a true delight, by the way. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, just as like a takeaway, this is my last question. What would be a day in your life as far as like what you're eating? So when you wake up to the time you go to bed, what would be a normal day in the life of what you eat? So I generally, uh, the answer is I don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I typically don't eat till maybe two or three in the afternoon. Uh, and I have dinner, let's say at six or six thirty. So I've got a pretty good fast going. All of my morning tasks, tasks sounds negative. All of my morning uh, <laughs> opportunities <enterprise. laughs> <There you> go. <laughs> are spent in, in ketosis. Uh, my writing, my blogging, my interviews, uh, like right now, I'm in ketosis uh, because you know it truly is the way to amp up the way your brain works. And it's not just because I know the data inside and out, but it's because I've experienced it personally. So uh, then when I do eat uh, by mid-afternoon, that is when I break my fast, hence the term break fast, there are a few things I I will do. Uh, On occasion, I will make uh, some eggs with um, avocado and lots and lots of olive oil. So I get added fat. Yes, more and more fat, the better. But lately, I've been doing just this, uh, a bowl of chia seeds, uh, almonds, pecans, uh, coconut flakes, and hemp seeds, and I put a little kefir in that. And I mm. find that to be hugely satisfying. Hardly any uh, glycemic index going on here. I, and, I, and I've tested afterwards. I'm still in ketosis, low blood sugar. And then dinner is a great meal. I mean, I, eating is great. Uh, I love to eat. And I, uh, the, the good news is uh, that uh, I'm, not, I'm a crummy cook. So the good news is my <laughs> wife's a good cook and knows that I'm a crummy cook, so even better. I eat at home, everything is fully organic, always. And it's mostly vegetables, above ground, dark, leafy green vegetables, colorful vegetables, purple, red. Uh, if we have meat, uh, it would be grass-fed. We rarely have meat, uh, but we do have some free-range chicken. Mostly we eat a lot of wild fish. So that's what dinner would look like. Uh, would there be uh, something for carbohydrate in there? There might be. Uh, beans, peas. Sometimes we might even splurge and have some gluten-free small amount pasta or even rice. It's not that common. Do I have a little bit of 85% or greater uh, chocolate after dinner? I do, and I enjoy it. <laughs> do we drink wine? Probably not enough. Uh, I, we, I, really, uh, I will go probably two, three, sometimes four weeks without a glass of wine. So my tolerance is very, very low. And that might be why I don't drink much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think statistically it probably would be better off if I did have a little bit more red wine. I just don't tolerate it uh, that much anymore. I don't like how I sleep. So, um, but I, I will have a glass of wine or two uh, to be social. And uh, I think the other uh, main part of the story is I exercise every single day and uh, it's aerobics every day, weights every other day, yoga just about every day so I don't hurt myself. Because, you know, the exercise does so many things. It, in my case, one of the things I think about while I'm exercising is that I'm increasing BDNF, this hormone to make new brain cells. Having mentioned to you that my father died of Alzheimer's, I know I am at risk. 
So, um, so I exercise a, a lot, I, but I love to exercise. I mean, I love being out. I listen to podcasts or I listen to nothing. I write books when I exercise, mm-hmm. come home and write it down real quickly so I don't forget what I, I, I discovered. Uh, I do take nutritional supplements. I take vitamin D. I take a methylated B complex. I have added fish oil, coenzyme Q10, probiotic, prebiotic, nicotinamide, riboside, uh, magnesium, collagen. Uh, Collagen, uh, I'm a big believer in. Truthfully, uh, I've never said this on a podcast before, but I had uh, (laughs) frequent nosebleeds of all things with low blood pressure. Figure that one out. Out of the blue, I could be, uh, one time I was giving a talk in New York City, downtown, middle of my talk, I went like that, my hand, and I was bleeding, Mm. but I kept talking. (laughs) (laughs) So um, collagen for me has been really effective in that regard, I believe. So um, uh, a lot of things uh, that uh, will change in my program as I learn more, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, some people say, oh my gosh, Dr. Perlmutter used to be, tell us to eat low fat. Yeah, I did. I did 20 years ago, but you know, that's not what the science is telling us. And I owe it to you to tell you what I believe the best of our science is telling me as I see it. So there you go. Mm. Awesome. That was beautiful. Um, Last question. I, I would love to know if you had a message for, you know, our generation, you know, 25 to 40, you know, if you had a message for them, what would it be? Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you didn't say one point, one bullet point, because I, I do have a message for your generation. And uh, I'm really very much in touch with your generation, with our kids being uh, 28 and 30. And all of my business management is uh, 30 or younger. So, um, I'm really in touch uh, with them. And I think uh, what I'm seeing in this generation is a real desire to reconnect. It's, it's, it's really become a wave. Uh, it's becoming a, you know, something that's gaining a lot of traction because I think the disconnection brought on by our modern society has become so pervasive that finally there's pushback. So I would recognize and portray the importance of reestablishing connections with your friends uh, understanding that social media and uh, likes on uh, things that you post aren't important, that when you're doing that, you're judging yourself based upon the responses from others. And when you're looking at everybody else's posts, those aren't reality. Nobody posts themselves uh, as having a, a, a crummy day and looking ugly or whatever, the way they normally might be. We only tend to see the best. And in the ads that seem to pop up on social media, understand the obvious. Those are targeting you. Those are ads designed for Lindsay. They're ads designed for Krista. You know that. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But they're very, very um, pernicious, aren't they? They really ha- And they're very, very attractive. And we find ourselves clicking those things. Your brain is being manipulated and degraded to make you connect to your fear center as opposed to empathy, compassion center. And and finally, I would reemphasize what we talked about earlier, that you're going to be my age one of these days. It's going to have, you know, open your eyes and say, what happened? Where did those 30 years go? I mean, it was just yesterday. And now now I'm in this position and and life can apply for Medicare next year. 
uh, yeah, I'm still running several miles at a, you know, each day and listening to Doobie Brothers and thinking everything's great, but the calendar does, it tells me a different story. So that said, the message is that the lifestyle cho- choices that you engage in right now are extremely important uh, for you in terms of what you're going to be like uh, in your future. And the future is coming. That's what, again, not that Dr. Perlmutter has told you, but that's what the literature tells you, that inflammation is the key mechanism that you've got to reduce by reducing blood sugar, by eating the way we've talked about. So these choices have to be implemented right now and uh, very, very important. Thank you. You said it. You said it. So much gratitude for your fearlessness to just bring the truth, no matter if people are and institutions and, you know, years and years of what the doctors have told us push back. So thank you. You are doing... You are doing the true work. So really well, appreciate, I appreciate you. That. You guys are great. I mean, uh, you know. I know. Tell me about it. You are. I <laughs> this love is the to- This is the and, part uh, of the interview where we, we say talk how about much great do you love we us. are. <laughs> you're turning red, as a matter of fact. Look at her. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, you're right. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you very, very much for having me. I am always so grateful just uh, that people want to hear what I'm thinking. And that, that makes me feel really good. It, it, it's very encouraging to continue to do the work. Uh, so please know I'm grateful. Yes. Oh, the same. And we will have our community connect with you. They are inspired by you. They already know of you. So hearing from you is a true pleasure. Um, your team was great in helping us schedule this. So if you're ever in LA, please let us know. We could hang out with Dave as well. Yeah. Uh, but it has been a treat. So thank you Back so into the much. Cryo. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. later. Bye. Thank you so much, Dr. Perlmutter. You can get Grain Brain everywhere books are sold. And he actually, he and his wife are coming out with a book, Brainwash, next year. Oh. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Lindsay and I were flying high after our interview with him. Truly. Thank you so, so much. All right. Review of the week. Thank you all so much for writing reviews. Truly, it means so much to us. We read every single one of them and appreciate um, your love, support, and feedback. Um, Inspiring and life-changing. Five stars. I've started listening to this podcast a year ago and have had my life dramatically changed because of it. Kristen and Lindsay have exposed me to so many authors, healers, and thought leaders that I never heard of before. I'm not overly entrenched in the wellness world, so it's possible I could have been exposed via a different podcast, but the conversations nope. <laughs> these two have, <laughs> have with their guests are so down to earth and relatable that I often find myself laughing out loud, sharing episodes with friends and remembering to look their interviews up later, interviewees up later. I've started manifestation courses with Lacey Phillips and have begun to heal internally, and I've chosen to go off of hormonal birth control via Alyssa Vitti's protocol and supplements. My life is transforming before my eyes and I finally have the courage to take my own creative risks the way these two did. They are constantly striving to incorporate feedback and bring on a variety of guests and I admire their ability to be agile, confident, and entertaining. This is my favorite podcast and a bright spot in my week. I must subscribe. Wow, that is... Wow. Thank you. Lauren Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you. We read those just to thank you. We, we, yeah, you know, means a lot. Thanks, guys, for writing the reviews. You. And as she said, if anything resonates with you, I'm sure it'll resonate with someone else. So it means a lot to us that you pass this along, um, spread the word. Yeah. 
We love you. And we'll see you in Austin, almost30podcast.com, almost30podcast on Instagram. Our Instagram's pretty hot. And then almost30nation <laughs> on Instagram for our ambassadors to see what our community is up to. Yeah, follow I, that account. Follow that account. I am at 100blog, H-U-N-D-R-E-D blog on Instagram. And I'm at Lindsay Simsick, E-Y, and then S-I-M-C-I-K. See ya next time. See ya. <laughs>